thought, perhaps if I spent time with you in your hometown, with your family, I'd get to know the real you. The real me? Alex, you know the real me. I'm no different here than I am in New York. I wanted to see where you came from. The place that made you, well, you. Because then perhaps I'd have the courage to tell you about where I came from. About the place that made me who I am. Alex. That's why I invited you to Medelvia this summer. It gave me time to figure out how to invite you into my life. Look, I never meant to mislead you. But when is the right time to tell someone that you're not who they think you are? That you're not who you want to be? You don't want to be a prince? A clip from the just-premiered Lifetime Network film, My Christmas Prince, which is presently running throughout the rest of the month. It's that time of year again, in case you couldn't tell by the music, when Lifetime, Hallmark, ABC Family, and more roll out their gauntlet of feel-good Christmas flicks while you decorate the tree, chug a little eggnog, catch up with the nieces and nephews, and maybe even break some of those dieting goals and promises for just a couple of weeks. As for the movie's part, there can be a tendency, and hey, we admit at times we've been as guilty as anyone else, to pigeonhole them into the barrel of those kinds of movies. Chick flicks, interchangeable, nondescript, feel-gooder holiday fodder with as much lasting cinematic impression on the palate as a candy cane 15 minutes after it's gone. But that's not really fair. The fact is, like any other kind of film, drama, comedy, sci-fi, or comic book adaptation, or whatever, there are cookie-cutter ones, and there are those which stand out proudly from the pack, chiefly because of the filmmaker behind it. And as such, we personally found My Christmas Prince to be one of the most charming and well-made holiday-themed rom-coms since 1995's While You Were Sleeping, one of our all-time favorite films, period, by the way. Now, as for pigeonholing, needless to say, it's pretty impossible to be any kind of artist these days, visual, musical, literary, and certainly filmic, without being pigeonholed by one's own managers, agents, studio heads, whatever, and by audiences who will often, hell, immediately seek the slot of film personality's ass, even after only one movie, into a convenient Kentucky Derby horse racing-like slot from which they can later easily, or perhaps lazily, refer back to without too much fuss. Every now and then, though, you get one, let's call them creatively rebellious sort, who won't go quietly into that artistic, or rather lack of artistic, good night. And tonight's guest has led and still continues to lead a creative life as diverse and eclectic as any. In fact, because he's just loved all manner and facets of film since the day as a child he visited the set while Blake Edwards was shooting the comedy classic The Great Race, pretty cool, he'd obstinately, cleverly, and entertainingly make a point to continue to create in all genres of film and in all facets of those genres. Early in his career, he'd serve as an assistant to, then producer for, Brian De Palma, on films such as The Fury and Blowout, where he'd get the chance to watch such talents work as Kirk Douglas and John Cassavetes, and interview others like composer John Williams. And his education there would serve him well later, when he himself took the reins and directed Rod Steiger, Heather Graham, John Hurd, Michael Madsen, Isaac Hayes, George Takei, and many more, including that Mistress of the Dark herself, Elvira, a.k.a. Cassandra Peterson, and a slew of big-screen and TV thrillers, sci-fiers, comedies, assorted other telemovies, musical specials, and more over 25 years. 
He'd go on to acclaim as a cinema historian with his lauded biography on actress, singer, author Kay Thompson and his co-producing of Bill Condon's Oscar-winning film Gods and Monsters, starring Sir Ian McKellen and Brendan Fraser. He'd teach at USC, where Fruitvale Station, Creed, and Black Panther's Ryan Coogler was a student in one of his classes. And he'd go on to become one of Hallmark Channel and Lifetime Channel's primo go-to directors on a slew of uh, TV movie thrillers and Christmas films, many of which are re-airing over the next few weeks of the holiday season. In fact, his newest, the holiday romantic comedy My Christmas Prince, of which we mentioned earlier, and of which he just finished the sound mix the day before he sat down with us, debuted on December 3rd and is running for the rest of the month on Lifetime. It features an all-star cast including Pitch Perfect's Alexis Knapp, Colin Alexander, Marina Sirtis, and reunited after 40 years, Hardy Boys, Nancy Drews, Parker Stevenson, and Pamela Sue Martin. So considering how whipped he must have been after the marathon run finishing the film, the fact that he'd take the time to let his hair down and shoot the S with us was indeed an honor. Ladies and gentlemen, it's our great honor and pleasure tonight to introduce to you the most non-pigeonholed of filmic multi-hyphenates, director, producer, author, and more, including just a great guy to sit and chat with about all things cinema, Mr. Sam Irvin. I'm Craig Jamison of Gold Cottage Online, and in a moment I'll be joined by my co-hosting padre, Jim Delaney of The Lunch Movie. And welcome to Sam I Am, the creative gods and monstrous passion of Mr. Sam Irvin. But I'm looking for Alexander Hendricks. Alexander Theodore William Hendricks, Crown Prince of Medelvia. Oh, my. Felicia. Alexander, the Queen sent me. For someone so concerned with proper manners, it's quite rude of her to dispatch you during everyone's Christmas holiday. Um, perhaps we should take this inside. Felicia, is it? Yes. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Well, first of all, I just want to say welcome to the Movie Sneak. Thank you very much. I'm really excited to be part of this show. And really excited to have you. I mean, first, I'm going to open with uh, what I like to refer to as uh, kind of a line that Jordy said in uh, the Next Generation movie, the first Next Generation movie. 
No, so, oh, I'm sorry, the second one, uh, First Contact. A little bit of hero worship. <laughs> <laughs> In the sense of that, I first came to, uh, even though I grew up watching films and loving films and wanting to be involved in film, I would say it was my biggest film school was a time working at a video store in Philadelphia called TLA Video, which doesn't exist anymore. From like the mid-80s to the early 90s. And around that time, there was just such a huge surge in up-and-coming filmmakers. You know, be they Richard Linklater or, or, or Spike Lee or, or the Coen Brothers. I mean, I remember when Crime Wave first came out and I was introduced to the Coen Brothers and Sam Raimi, you know. Um, yep. Around that same time is when I first became familiar with you. And uh, at the time, it was through genre films. You know, stuff like Guilty as Charged and the Oblivion films. And... Uh, this is a compliment, I swear. <laughs> when I worked at the video store, I used to work with this woman. Her name was Sloan. Sloan Ranger. I swear to God, that's her real name. That's great. Wow. I swear to God, okay. yeah. <laughs> and every Monday I'm gonna, night... I'm going to write that down and use it in the script. <laughs> cool. <laughs> and every night, uh, every Monday night, we had what we call Bad Movie Night, where we would try to find what had to be the worst movie in the store. And there were like 12 or 13... <laughs> yeah, and there were 12 or 13 screens. We'd put it on, crank the sound up, and there was a bar across the street where people would come in, sometimes a little liquored up, and we would sort of have our version of... an early version of Mystery Science Theater 3000. <laughs> now, it was great, but what often happened, at least 60% of the time, I swear to God, more than half the time, 15, 20 minutes into whatever movie it was, either me or Sloan would say, hey, you know what? This is actually pretty cool. Take this off and put something else on. I'm taking this one home tonight. <laughs> and I fell in love with a lot of films and got to know a lot of filmmakers that I might otherwise not have just from taking a flyer, you know, and putting on stuff. And around that time, you know, the um, the Oblivion films, uh, Guilty as Charged. Uh, and then, you know, Guilty as Charged, obviously, just by the title, we knew there was going to be a streak of humor <laughs> running through it. Yeah. But, you know, but there was a little more there uh, as well. You know, I had uh, a little something to say. And over the years, interestingly, uh, as I followed your career, I love the fact that you, and I don't know whether it's conscious or not, but you kind of refuse to be typecast. Uh, <laughs> as soon as, at least I, started thinking of you as the genre director, there was the humorous stuff, the MTV show, uh, Strip Mall. And then I wasn't aware of your involvement with the De Palma films until later, and then there was the sports stuff. Uh, and then as the years went on, the TV stuff, the various TV shows. And now three TV movies in one year, for God's sakes, including the one coming up uh, uh, this week. And it's like this guy. Ref oh, and of course, as what we call the Hollywood historian with the book about Kay Thompson and Gods and Monsters and a few other things. So, yeah, I just really it's been a pleasure following your career over the years and just kind of like, OK, so what's around the next corner <laughs> kind of thing? So, it, is, uh, it does get pretty unpredictable, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's very, very nice. I'm actually honored and surprised, and, you know, I always feel like I sort of fall under the radar, so I'm always amazed when somebody knows who I am and uh, and actually has connected a few of these dots. <laughs> Although the, the thing that the thing that jumped out to me actually was was and I, I remember seeing your name on, on from, from movies on Showtime and uh, that's where I first noticed was was on Showtime and uh, kind of in an era when I mean now cable movies are as highly regarded as some feature films and are oftentimes better right and then you go but then we, when we go back to the eighties and back to the nineties some of those were too it's just no one was noticing it as much then. 
So it's it's kind of like a, a bit of a trailblazing thing for you to say, well, here's this thing that you know isn't necessarily a. I mean, I, mean, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it also feels like I mean, it, almost like that era might have been a, a bit of a wild wild west, almost like the '50s for live TV, where you know we're not bound by the rules of TV and we're not bound by the rules of you know theater distribution. That it's a different animal, and maybe we can kind of do things that hadn't been done before. And I was, I, that's part of what I was mostly hoping to ask you about was was if that was there, if that if that was you know if there was any different sense to even at the time to, to like the beginning of something. Uh, definitely. I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, when we when I was doing films on Showtime and stuff, there was so much more freedom to kind of do what you want to do. And uh, it, it, especially compared to now when I'm doing films for cable channels like Lifetime and Hallmark and whatnot, where it's very tightly formulaic and very tightly controlled. And, you know, you pretty much have to... Um, deliver a product that that falls in line with what they have set hmm. up as their standards, and um, but yeah, those are those early lifetime, I, I mean early Showtime films like Acting on Impulse with Linda Fiorentino and Nancy Allen and C. Thomas Howell, and you know we were the Wild Wild West. It was it was kind of anything goes. <laughs> it was so much fun. Just uh, I guess going back to the beginning, uh, see that you were born in Asheville, <clears throat> North Carolina. Uh, few hundred miles west of where a lot of my family's from. Uh, a lot of my family's from from Fayetteville originally. Oh, wow. Um, Good Lord. Huh. So just curious <laughs> as to what were some of your influences? What led you towards film? How did you get involved in that career? My dad owned movie theaters, and um, and his father uh, was a district manager for a big movie theater chain in the South. And so I grew up kind of, you know, in that world of going to movie theater ah, nice. and seeing every movie for free. And, and as I, you know, popping popcorn and tearing tickets and hanging out in the projection booth like the kid in Cinema Paradiso. And, you know, it was just, that was my playground. And it was, you know, this is back in the, you know, ancient era before <laughs> VHS and before you could, you could watch movies at home. Uh, you know, if you, people just didn't see movies more than right. once, usually. They'd see it in the theater, and then they'd wait for it to maybe show up on one of the three networks, and, you know, and that was few and far between. So it really gave me an opportunity to watch films multiple times that most people didn't have that um, advantage, and it was it was really something. It just got into my blood, and I um, at the age of eight... My family took a cross-country trip to California. We went to Disneyland and all of that. But my, because of my dad's connections in the industry, we got VIP tours of some of the studios, and especially Warner Brothers. And I walked onto the soundstage where they were shooting The Great Race, the <laughs> cool. Blake Edwards movie. <laughs> Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon and, and Natalie Wood, and they just so happened to be doing this storm scene cool. <laughs> in this humongous tank of water with these giant fans blowing and, you know, creating waves and all this stuff, and they had antique cars on the on the iceberg, and, and I just, my eyes popped right out of my head. Yeah. I mean, it was just like, that was the uh, moment where... I learned that all this <laughs> stuff was created. I think up until then, I thought if they needed to shoot a scene like that, they had to go to the North Pole and wait <laughs> for the storm and, you know, and then roll the cameras. I'm hungry. 
She's getting it. How long does it take to open a can of beans? The eternal struggle takes time, Max. What struggle? She's got a can opener. You, cork brain, I'm talking about man, woman, sex, conquest. What was that? He's making his move. And I'm sure she's interested, but unless I miss my guess, she will never submit. Well, if she does, we're not gonna get no beans. It's a contest, Max, and he's using weapons that have toppled everything from a Kansas farm girl to a European duchess. But she will counter with women's rights. <laughs> that's terrible. Yes. For a man like Leslie, that's terrible. Like me, he must win on his own terms. And she recognizes no terms except her own. Come and get it! You see? Maybe she don't mean us. And then uh, they took us around and they we saw this fourth perspective thing of uh, one of the, this big mansion uh -huh. up on a hilltop that blows up or whatever. And they had built this model house up on on this hilltop that was, you know, I, I, I can't tell you the perspective exactly, but the house was, you know, probably three feet tall kind of thing. And, but then as you came down this hill, they built a full-size gate and sidewalk in the foreground. Nice. And just the whole idea of forced perspective was mind-blowing for an eight-year-old. Yeah. I just couldn't believe that that would actually work on film, and it did. And uh, so it was that, that... And then the same day, we also went over to a stage where they were shooting two on a guillotine with Dean Jones and Connie Stevens. And William Conrad was directed, Frank and he offered me a tiny part in the movie, but they weren't <laughs> oh, going to wow. shoot it for a couple of days. And my parents were like, "No, we have to stay on schedule. We can't. Damn. We can't stay." And I'm like, <laughs> I, "I never forgave him for it." And um, but it was it was just it was that day at Warner Brothers that just completely convinced me that I wanted to be a filmmaker, and I took the eight millimeter home movie camera out of my dad's hand and never gave it back. <laughs> when I got back home, I just started making eight millimeter movies and Dracula films with my little brother wearing a black beach towel as a cape, you know, and just worked, worked my yeah. way up <laughs> from there. <laughs> and did you attend any film schools uh, at that point or did you just jump right in, you know, uh, both feet in the water? I went to school at the University of South Carolina and um, majored in their film right. department. Yeah. And um, oddly enough, I ended up being chairman of the film committee on campus there, and we ran a movie theater that showed movies every night that we would rent from Films Incorporated and that whole kind of thing. And um, mm -hmm. We decided I was a huge fan of Brian De Palma, and especially because he was basically copying all of Hitchcock stuff. And I was a gigantic mm -hmm. fan of Hitchcock, and had actually taken a course on Hitchcock um, at that school. And so we decided to do this Brian De Palma festival. And we let's see, at that time, Fan of the Paradise had come out, so we were going to book nice. that and Sisters, and then some mm -hmm. of his early films like Hi, Mom, and Greetings with De Niro, um, Get to Know Your Rabbit, and mm -hmm. some of his other stuff. And so I just boldly figured, let me try to get a hold of him. How do I do that? So I'm looking in the trade papers, and I see that he's casting a film called Carrie, and in the production charts, they list a phone number for the casting director. <laughs> so I call up. 
and say, could I speak to Brian De Palma? And they go, well, he's in a casting session, but he'll be out in about 10 minutes for a break. Why don't you call back then? I called back. They put him on. <laughs> And I explained what we were doing, and he said, I live in New York. If you can give me the Triangle airfare to South Carolina, right. then to New York, and then back to L.A., I'll come. Cool. And we, I said, yes. Well, casting sessions with Carrie ended up being the most famous casting session in the history because of the universe. Because they were casting Star Wars, too. He right? and George yeah. Lucas. Yep. He and George Lucas were reading every kid in town for Star Wars mm. and Carrie. But anyway, so De Palma comes to uh, South Carolina. We have Phantom of the Paradise. Everyone is supposed to come in costume. It's completely sold out. De Palma's going to judge the best costume, which we do before the movie runs. And all does all went great. We had prizes, everything. Then we start the movie, and there's no sound. Oh, shit. No. <laughs> and... I run up to the projection booth, and the sound bulb on the 16-millimeter oh, projector had burned oh. out, and it was Saturday night at midnight. I did not have an extra yeah. one. And oh, we had man. And oh, oh, my God. All the goodwill that I built up with De Palma surely now on the toilet, mm. and he luckily, he thought it was funny, and... <laughs> In retrospect, it, it kind of made him remember me. <laughs> Robin, we're going to show you a film. Now, there's nothing in there that can possibly harm you. But you must keep watching. Okay. Robin, please keep watching. Robin, please, for God's sake, watch the screen. Gillian! Gillian! Where is Robin now, between father and son, except one. You have a talent that would shock the hell out of people. But it's a talent that also can be put to good use. For lovers of the shocking, the suspenseful, and the terrifying, comes a new classic, The Fury. They took my son away from me. They needed him, so they just took him. What the hell have you done to that boy? Oh, he's being treated like a prince. He is. He's royalty. Unique. Chinese don't have one. Soviets don't have one. In all the world, there's no one quite like Robin Sanza. Unless it's this girl. Who's Robin Sanza? He's a boy your age. With powers like yours. Powers that build. And build. Until they become the fear. Um, okay, so then uh, Carrie comes out, you know, the biggest hit of his career. His career is really launched now in a huge way. 
And he's going to follow it up with a film called The Fury, which is a big studio movie, 20th Century Fox, big budget, Kirk Douglas, John Cassavetes, Amy Irving, everybody's in it. And, um, and it's shooting in Chicago during the summer between my junior and senior year at University of South Carolina. So I now have De Palma's phone number. I call him up and I beg, can I please come and work on the film as a production assistant, intern, whatever. I just really want to get the experience of being on a set. And he said, sure, come on up. Oh, cool. So I ended up working on the film and I also got an assignment to write journal on the making of the film for Fantastique magazine. And uh, I had also, before that, I had been putting out my own fanzine called Bizarre on horror films, especially uh, British horror, Hammer films, and Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, that sort of thing. And um, so I already knew the editor of Cinefantastique, and he was a fan of my fanzine. And so getting the assignment was pretty easy, and especially since I would you know, be right there and, and have uh, access to everything from... Kirk Douglas to John yeah. Cassavetes to you name it. It was just, you know, an amazing kind of film school um, experience to be able to do that. And, um, and then, uh, then I went back to school in the fall and I went up to New York during my Christmas break where they were editing the film and I got to interview Paul Hirsch, who was the editor. He, oh, wow. of course, is known for a little film called Star Wars. <laughs> and, uh, it's quite legendary in the business, so that was really great. And um, and then I got to do a phone interview with John Williams, who was doing the score Sweet. for the film. I mean, it was wow. just, you know, it, it, it was wow. incredible. Then um, in the spring of 1978, um, he was just, De Palma was just finishing The Fury, and he, was, he decided to teach a course on screenwriting at Sarah Lawrence College. And so I was finishing my final semester of my senior year at University of South Carolina. Well, while he was teaching this course, his students um, basically fleshed out a treatment that he had written called Home Movies. Mm -hmm. And he assigned different scenes to different students. And by the end of the semester, they had a completed, polished script. And he decided that summer of 78, he wanted to make a low-budget film of that script and using students from his class as part of the crew, mm -hmm. but also mixing in some professionals and bringing in, you know, professional actors like Kirk Douglas and Nancy Allen and Keith Gordon and uh, Garrett Graham from, from Phantom of the Paradise with Beef. Oh, cool. And uh, so he, this time, called me up, <laughs> quite an honor, and uh, said, hey, we're going to be doing this film this summer you want to come up and work on it. And you're graduating, right? And I said, yeah, I'm looking, I'll be looking for work. So <laughs> this is uh, perfect timing. So I got, I didn't even wait for my the results of my final exams or go to the graduation or anything. I just took my last exam and hopped <laughs> the next plane to New York. And uh, so he tells me, you know, I'm figuring I'm going to be a production assistant and an extra or whatever he needs, like I did on the Fury. And he basically says, you're going to be the associate producer and production juror. <laughs> so it was kind of like throwing somebody in the deep end to see if they could swim. And 
That's what happened. And it turned out to be just this trial by fire, incredible experience. And at the end of that, then he asked me to be on Dress to Kill, a whole bunch of things that he had in development, and um, blow out a number of other projects. And um, so it was just, you know, that was more than the University of South Carolina. It was really, you know, working with De Palma that really taught me the business and and taught me what it was like to direct movies on, you know, on a, a professional setting. In America, violent crime is out of control. A mugging occurs every three minutes. Hey, ladies, you can hear me in there. Open up. A murder is committed every ten minutes. Someone's got to do something. And someone is. Who are you? Justice. He's a vigilante. You've certainly picked an unusual hobby. Hobby? Oh, no, my dear, this is not a hobby. And he's turning up the juice. I can get you something real special for your last meal. Rod Steiger. Lauren Hutton. Heather Graham. Lyman Ward. And Isaac Hayes. How about some Kentucky Fried Chicken? No! Guilty as charged. So from there, uh, graduating from the School of De Palma, as it were, what would you consider your first film, uh, feature or short? My first professional short film was a film called Double Negative that I made in 1985. And it, uh, it starred Bill Randolph, who was the cab driver in Dressed to Kill, Bill Finley, who was the Phantom of the Paradise, oh, yeah. um, Wayne Knight, who was Newman on Seinfeld, <laughs> and Justin Henry, who was the kid in <laughs> Kramer vs. Kramer. And it was a 20-minute uh, short about mm-hmm. a low-budget director whose latest movie, the sleazy producers, who were Bill Finley and Wayne Knight, decide mm-hmm. that uh, they could make more money by stealing the negative and collecting the insurance <laughs> than if the film were to come out. Uh, the director finds out about the plot, <laughs> so he gets to the lab first and replaces, you know, gets secures right. the negative uh, and replaces it with a uh, dummy negative. So there's, you know, what they're stealing is the wrong thing. And um, so anyway, it, it, it was a, it was fun, and uh, it got it got accepted at Sundance, and then it ended up open theatrically okay. in New York and L.A. with some big films. It played in front of. Scorsese's After Hours and Emerald Forest, the John Borman film, and Songwriter and and some other films. And that became my calling card to use to get my foot in the door to be able to start directing. And there was a company called IRS Media that was run by Mm -hmm. Copeland and um, Stuart Copeland's Mm -hmm. brother and Paul Mm -hmm. Collishman. They were... um, were based in Los Angeles, and their films were being financed almost exclusively by TriStar Columbia Home Video back in the days when one pre-sale to home video financed right. a film to the tune of $1.2 million. <laughs> uh, in those days are long gone. So, um, <laughs> yeah. But back then, the head, the head TriStar Columbia Home Video was a guy named Larry Estes. Now, oh, cool. I had known Larry 
for years. I he had prior to that um, was based in in Atlanta and was the head booker for Films Incorporated, uh, the sixteen millimeter um, distribution company uh-huh. that I booked all my films from <laughs> when I was running the theater on campus at University of South Carolina. So. I had gotten to know him really well, and so he's the one who introduced me to the people at IRS Media and to work with this kid, and, um, you know, I showed him my short film, and they happened to have a script in development called Guilty as Charged that was dark comedy and had elements, you know, similar kind of tone to what my short film was. So it just was sort of magical slam dunk and so i got hired to direct that film it took us a while to cast uh rod steiger in the lead and he wasn't available right away so the film got delayed a bit but i came i came out to la thinking i was going to do the film and then go back to new york but i quickly realized that i needed to be in la so i ended up moving to la permanently and and i've been in la ever since Mm -hmm. And um, and Guilty as Charged obviously became my first feature film and had an incredible cast. We had um, Heather Graham, Lauren Hutton, Isaac Hayes, Zelda Rubenstein, um, an amazing array of talent. And it was just a charm project. It was written by Charlie Gale, who's the brother of Bob (laughs) Gale of the Back to the Future Mm -hmm. movies. And um, it was just so much fun to do. And we created all the sets and I wanted them to be very sort of German expressionistic and very much like the universal James Whale movies and stuff. And then um, when it got reviewed and it got reviewed by the LA times by Kevin Thomas, and he actually said in his review that um, it was a cross between James Whale's Frankenstein movies and Robert Fuse's Dr. Five and those are like okay. my all-time favorite movies. I'm not like, favorites. Holy moly! <laughs> I was like, you know, in in just sheer heaven, and so I was I was really happy about that. And then uh, from from there, I did the Showtime film Acting on Impulse, which was uh, Linda Ferentino plays a scream queen horror movie actress whose producer has been murdered, and there's. Uh, as to whether she murdered him or not, and then she goes on the lamb, and it becomes kind of this whodunit, and everybody is that. Uh, Nancy Allen, of course, from my De Palma days, and C. Thomas Howell, and Zelda Rubenstein again, Isaac Hayes again. <laughs> they were sort of part of my ensemble back then. Adam mm-hmm. Ant, Paul Bartell, Mary Warnoff, Patrick mm-hmm. Bosho, Donnie Most from Happy mm-hmm. Days, Charles Lane, uh, <laughs> Peter Lupus, Mission Impossible, yeah. <laughs> cool. Kim McGuire, who was Hatchet Face, and John mm-hmm. Waters. I guess it was, uh, what was it? Uh, I forget which, which one Cry it was. Baby. It was Crybaby. Um, I'm fairly certain Hatchet it was, face was, was Crybaby, but... Uh... I'm 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 yeah, betting Crybaby. Yeah, okay. yeah it's Crybaby for sure. <laughs> now this is around the same time that you met uh, Cassandra Peterson, uh, Elvira, right? Yeah. So so how, how did that uh, how did that uh, how did you guys come to work together? Because if I'm not mistaken, she had seen Guilty as Charged, right? Yep, I met her at a party, and 
she said, oh my God, I loved your film so much. If I ever do another Elvira movie, I want you to direct it. And I'm like, wow, that's really incredible. I love cool. I love Elvira, and I would love to do that. Yeah. But of course, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, this is Hollywood speak. Okay, I get it. And uh, it'll never happen. But having met right. her, then I put a cameo in Acting on Impulse, where she played a bouncer at a country western bar, and she wore a Dolly Parton kind of blonde wig and was hilarious. <laughs> And so we became, you know, f- friends or acquaintances. And but then several years go by, and you know, I'm mm-hmm. not even thinking about it. And then suddenly, out of the blue, in about 999, I guess, she calls me and goes, "Hey, I'm finally we're finally doing another Elvira movie. I'd like you to come in and meet with us, and because we're interviewing possible directors." And wow, okay, yes, I'll be there. So oh, I go wow. in and. You know, we knew each other kind of, but she, I don't think she quite understood just the depth of how big a fan I was of horror films. <laughs> and um, so she starts, okay, so our script is basically, it's a spoof of the Vincent Price, Edgar Allan Poe, Roger Corman movies. Are you familiar with uh, those? And I'm like, <laughs> oh. Am I familiar <laughs> right, right, with right. those? Um, okay, Price, Climax. Hitting the pendulum. Monologue. Do right, you right. know where you are, Bartolome? You are about to enter hell. Hell, the Neverworld, <laughs> the Infernal Region, the Abode of the Damned, a place of torment, Gehenna, <laughs> Naraka, the Pit, Sweet. and the Pendulum, the Edge of Destiny, thus the condition of man, bound on an island from which he can never or hope to escape, surrounded by the waiting pit of hell, which must destroy him fine. And she goes, you're hired. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Get ready to say, sorry, close the door. We're not seeing anybody else. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. It was like a total dream true to direct <laughs> Elvira's Haunted Hills. It was so nice. much fun. And uh, we shot it in Romania, where I did the Oblivion films, which we'll talk about. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, we built the most incredible sets. Everything was created from the ground up. And oh. Richard O'Brien of Rocky Horror fame oh, played the Vincent Price character. I mean, it was just so much fun. Now, Jim had a question earlier, uh, before we went on the air, about your cast. Uh, I think, Jim, this will be the perfect time to, to ask it. Yeah, uh, basically, well, you already mentioned you, you had sort of the recurring ensemble, too. Basically, Craig and I were noticing that, you know, you haven't just worked with one generation. You've worked with two or three generations of some of the best-known character actors out there. Like, maybe people that, even passive movie fans, might not know all these names, but they definitely know the faces, right, and the voices. Oh, yeah. And I'm just wondering, I mean, after, mm-hmm. between... With your experience with De Palma and being with some of the some of the you know the bigger stars of uh, well of all time, some of them, right? Yeah. But, then, yeah. but then also with these these great character actors you've been with, is if you find any if you treat everybody the same or if you find any difference if you have to if it's easier to not have like somebody's star brand to deal with. Um, uh, well, well, I mean, basically, Elvira would definitely have a star brand, but also Elvira also sort of writes her own rules, right? So yeah, uh, yeah. yeah well, was, was, in those early films like Guilty as Charged and and acting on impulse and out there and you know i just i just wanted to have every every character with somebody known in those parts mm-hmm. and uh, and oblivion too and uh it was i just thought it was so much fun especially because they were tongue in cheek films to begin with um that it would just be so much fun to have these recognizable faces. And, yeah, you say, you know, like, people don't even know these people by name. They would definitely recognize them. Like, I mentioned Charles Lane. Mm-hmm. He had him come in. He was in his 90s, and he came in to really? play a bellhop in 
acting on impulse. Wow. Now, this is a guy who was in It's a Wonderful Life, and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, <laughs> and he was fantastic. He, he, and he just, he just made that moment that could have been just extra right, right, right. knocking on the door and you know, giving something to Linda Fiorentino, and it would just would have been nothing. But you yeah, open yeah, the yeah, door, yeah. and there's freaking Charles Lane. It's like, what? <laughs> That's what I love. Now, you can't always do that in a dramatic film or something. It would take people right out of it. But something for fun, it, you know, it just, to me, it makes it all the more fun. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, I mean, like, also acting on Impulse, we had um, Nick Sargent from Bewitched. He, at that time, he was, when we got in touch with him, found out, unfortunately, he was dying of cancer and not doing well. He was in chemotherapy sessions and everything else. And, and he turned me down and he said, I'm just not well enough. And I said, Hey, listen, it's one day you, you, you've already told me that you have some good days and you have some bad days. Let me have a all lined up and let's just see what happens on that day. If it turns out to be a good day, You'll come in and you'll have a great time. And um, and he said, well, if you're willing to do it on that right, basis, right. sure. I, you know, because I, I would love to work, but I just, you know, I can't do it if I'm just really feeling. Too. Well, luckily, it was a good day. He came in. He was freaking fantastic. Nice. And, you know, at the end of the day, he, you know, he put his arms around me and said, this has been the best therapy in the world for me to come in and do this. Awesome. And it was just, it was the most unbelievable day. Not only that, but it was also the day that my parents came to visit. Oh, wow. So I had my mom sort of playing his wife, sitting at the dais next to him. And my dad had a moment where he has one line with him in the lobby and stuff. So, I mean, it was just, it was a magical day. But, um, but it, was ju- it, was just, it was just so much fun to, you know, pepper the cast with these people. When I did the Oblivion films... Um, you know, we had people like George Takei from Star Trek and and Julie Newmar. The original Catwoman from, from, from Batman. And now yeah. she, we have her playing a feline alien who runs the saloon. And we have Carl Striken, who is Lurch in the Addams Family movie. And again, Isaac Hayes. And, uh, and you know, it was... It, I, I just had so much fun casting, you know, digging out names that it wouldn't necessarily have come up otherwise. There, um, you know, there's there's not as much nostalgia going on with the films that I do nowadays. However, having said that, jumping right ahead to uh, the film that I've just completed, My Christmas Prince, we do have um, the cast peppered with this sort of thing. Parker Stevenson and Pamela Sue Martin play the parents, cool. and it's their, they're reunited from the Hardy Boys, the Nancy, Hardy Drew. Boys Nancy Drew yeah. Mysteries. It's the first wow. time they've worked together in four oh, years. That's cool. Wow. Cool. It's exciting. We also have uh, Marina Surtees from yeah. Star Trek Next Generation. Nice. And uh, we've got Charles Shaughnessy from The Nanny, and I mean, it's, it's a really cool cast. So I'm excited about this one, for sure. The picture was called The Road Back. It was an indictment of the Great War and what it did to Germany. It was going to be my masterpiece. What happened? The fucking studio butchered it. They took the guts out of my picture. They brought in another director to add some slapstick. And the movie made an egg. Great expensive bomb for which I was blamed. Well, after that, I was out of fashion. I could no longer command the best project. So I walked away. 
Do you miss it? Oh. Oh, it was all so long ago. Fifteen years. Making movies is the most wonderful thing in the world. Working with friends, entertaining people. Yes, I suppose I miss it. Hi, I'm Robert Osborne. It's time for some Bob's picks here on TCM. The ones I've chosen for this march are a group which we haven't shown on TCM in prime time for quite a spell. And speaking of books, I really highly recommend this one from Sam Irvin, titled Kate Thompson, From Funny Face to Eloise. All about her life, and particularly fascinating to anyone interested in movies in the heyday of the big movie factories like MGM. For an example of Kate Thompson's amazing work, as a vocal arranger, there's no movie better than this next one. Her work evident from the moment the credits start and a chorus starts singing the title song, the vocal arrangements are pure Kay Thompson. Seriously steering into our theme of refusing to be typecast, we delve into your very respected position in the industry as filmic historian, which might come as a surprise to those perhaps more familiar with you from your thrillers. Yeah. Uh, you've many examples, but perhaps among the most prominent and known to the general public are your popular 2010 written biography of Kate Thompson, Kate Thompson from Funny Face to Eloise, which received quite a few damned impressive shout-outs from TCM's late Robert Osborne and others, and your co-producing of Bill Condon's Oscar-winning 1998 film Gods and Monsters, starring Brendan Fraser, Lynn Redgrave, and Ian McKellen in one of the greatest roles of his career as James Whale, the legendary director of Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, Showboat, and other classics, who in the present day reflects back on what it was like to be an openly gay filmmaker at a time when not only Hollywood... But society in general wasn't as relatively welcoming about such a lifestyle as it is today. Uh, neither one of those two endeavors are top 40s prime time pop culture <laughs> <laughs> ideas. So what personal passions led you to do them? Well, um, there's a lot of questions there. First of all, <laughs> I've always uh, been a always been a huge, huge you know, film buff and everything. And I, um, as I said, I, when I was a teenager, I published a fanzine on horror films called Bizarre. And I uh, went to England and interviewed all great Hammer film people and Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. I, I got to interview Christopher Lee on the set of Man with the Golden Gun, for Christ's sake. It was nice. unbelievable. And, uh, but um, I kind of put all that journalism aside uh, when I started working for Mun, getting involved in, in directing. And, um, but I missed it. I always loved that end of it. And I'd been the, like the film critic for the college newspaper, you know, that. So I really enjoyed writing. Um, so flash forward many, many years. And um, 
I getting frustrated because as a screenwriter, I'd had a couple of things produced. I did um, Kiss of a Stranger that I directed and wrote um, with Mariel Hemingway and Diane Cannon, David Carradine, and that was a, a thriller. And that was really fun. But a lot of the other scripts that I had done would get into development hell. And it just got frustrating to the point where, you know, my heart's not in it if I can't see it through to the end. And um, so just as a hobby, I started writing this book on Kay Thompson. And I figured it was just something for me to do um, because I was really fascinated by her and her and and the fact that nobody knew anything about her. I mean, she wrote the Eloise children's books. She was in Funny Face with Fred Astaire and Audrey Hepburn, and she opens the film with Think Pink. And that's pretty much what people knew about her, if they knew her at all. Um, it turns out, though, that she was a huge radio star in the 30s. She then in the 40s became head of the vocal department at MGM during all the big musicals that they were making. She was the vocal coacher for Judy Garland and Frank Sinatra and Lena Horne, and all of whom worshipped her. Then she became a nightclub sensation in the late 40s and early 50s with uh, a nightclub called Kay Thompson and the Williams Brothers. And the Williams Brothers consisted of little Andy Williams and three brothers. <laughs> no way. And they became the highest paid nightclub act in the world. And everybody talks about how Elizabeth Taylor broke the, the million dollar ceiling uh, when she did Cleopatra in 1950. Well, Kay Thompson was getting paid a million dollars as a nightclub act in 1950. And oh, 10 years earlier and never got any credit. And she you know, discovered Andy Williams, and when the nightclub act, the wayside, she managed and guided his whole rise to fame. She, they also were secret lovers for about 12 years, and they were 20 years apart. <laughs> and uh, she was always a star maker, whether it was Judy Garland, Frank Sinatra, Lena Horne, Andy Williams, and then her goddaughter, Liza Minnelli, she ended up guiding her through her entire career and, um, and lived with Liza the last 20 years of her life. Liza was her goddaughter. And, uh, and there were just so many things about Kay Thompson that people didn't know. She directed John F. Kennedy's inaugural gala. She was a member of the Rat Pack. She was just involved in so many things behind the scenes. And um, I decided it's time that she had a book you know, this unsung hero, heroine. And everybody that I talked to who knew and worked with her just absolutely mm -hmm. worshipped her. From it was, it was pretty remarkable. So it was such a fun project to do. Just mm -hmm. worked on it between films and interviewed over 200 people that knew her. Um, this, she had part, when she did the Eloise books in the 50s, she had partnered... <laughs> Um, with a guy named Bob Bernstein, who they did they did the merchandising for the character and had dolls and everything back then. Well, Bob went on to be head of Random House Publishing for like 20 years and was a huge legendary figure in uh -huh. the world in New York. And I had interviewed him several times, and he finally said, when is this damn book coming out? Do you have a literary agent? What the hell is going on? And I said, well, no, I don't have a literary agent. And he said, well, you need to talk to my son. He is a literary agent, and, um, and 
I'm going to look over his shoulder and make sure that it gets out there. Well, we sent it to to the top three publishers, and it ended up nice. getting into a bidding war, and Simon & Schuster ended up Sweet. publishing it. So wow. it got a huge publishing deal and, uh, and it, you know, and got out there in a very big way, which mm-hmm. was freaking thing, especially for a first-time yeah. biography author. So I was kind of charmed with that one. Lightning probably won't strike twice, but... Uh, then the editor of Little Shop of Horrors magazine, Richard Clemenson, he said, hey, I know you're a big fan of this film Frankenstein True Story, mm-hmm. which was a two-part NBC Universal movie with James Mason and Leonard Wyden and mm-hmm. David McCallum, Jane Seymour. Um, and because I had put it on the cover of Bizarre magazine way back mm-hmm. in 1974, the, right after it had aired. And uh, he said, I, would you be interested in doing an issue on the making of that film? Yeah. I'm like, hell yeah. So that would be incredible. <laughs> the only problem is I don't know how much right. information is out there about it. And then I suddenly remembered that when I was, when I was um, researching my Kay Thompson book at, at USC, Cinematic Arts Library, I noticed that they had papers of Hunt Stromberg Jr., who was the producer of the Frankenstein, the true story movie. And of course his dad was, you know, a major, major producer at MGM. And so his son had, um, had gone on and done some show business stuff. So I'm like, wait, they have his papers there. I bet he has some files on Frankenstein. So I go down to the library. Oh my God. 25 boxes of um, his life's work and uh, and quite a few files on frankenstein so (laughs) i had i had the issue and you know that was gonna the whole issue on the frankenstein movie was gonna come together incredibly plus he had like over a hundred you know 150 unique photographs from behind the scenes that had never been Mm -hmm. published it was incredible but at the same time while sifting through these 25 boxes i realized this is the subject of my next book. <laughs> Hunt Stromberg Jr. is, like Kate Thompson, one of the most amazing characters in Hollywood history that nobody knows about. He was gay, as I am, and so I identify a lot with what mm-hmm. he went through. He didn't have a great relationship mm-hmm. with his dad, um, and but led a really... Um, you know, was an early trailblazer of being very openly gay. I uh, I couldn't believe how open he was. And I, when I've been interviewing people, um, I've been asking him about that. I interviewed mm-hmm. Sid Scheinberg, who was head Universal. of uh, head of Universal and discovered mm-hmm. you know Steven Spielberg and championed his whole career. And I said, Sid, was Hunt really that openly gay back then? And he goes, Sam. With all due respect to the LGBT community, um, Hunt Stromberg Jr. was as gay as their sunshine in the tropics. <laughs> <laughs> and and he, uh, he was really quite flamboyant and really out there, especially for someone in the 50s and 60s before, you know, it was still illegal. It was still considered a, right. an illness by the American Psychiatric Society. You know, it was, it was not really that um, cool back then to be openly gay, but he really was. And his, his next-door neighbor was Liberace, <laughs> who always performed nice. at his parties. 
He had a pet monkey that he would bring to work on a leash. And his best friend was Mae West, and they would go out on the town together. So anyway, it's going to be an amazing book. It's going to be quite an amazing book. I guess this is a nice dovetail into the next category, which would be uh, activism through entertainment. I mean, you had mentioned um, uh, Mr. Stromberg, and you have done a number of films and TV series from Gods and Monsters to Dante's Cove to the TV movie Deadly Skies, uh, which have featured um, openly gay characters. And, uh, you know, and it seems to me that any cause, you know, be it the civil rights movement in the 60s and 70s, um, I mean, the strongest possible message to me comes through being entertaining. I mean, I think the reason that I mean, Will and Grace is, is, I was going to say was, is so successful, I think, primarily because it's damned funny and it's perceptive and it's accurate. And anyone, gay or straight, can plug into the humor and the accuracy of the interpersonal relationships. And then just by doing that, kind of like, you know, where you had an international cast uh, uh, on the bridge of the Enterprise, you know, when you have an African-American detective named John Shaft, uh, and then suddenly the, these all become cross-cultural hits, the message is relayed without having to preach and beat someone over the head. And so many of your work has, do, uh, has, has done that. So, um, Well, no, I think you're exactly right. And that's how I, exactly how I look at it as well. I mean, I think that um, I didn't really pursue wanting to do films about you know about gay issues and be political in that way i wasn't really interested in like the gay coming out mm-hmm. story or the you know the aid story um there's a there's a place right, right. for that but i felt from my for, from just my sensibility it was just let's have characters who just matter of fact happen to be but they're in great entertaining stories and um, and just and everything is treated matter of fact, and that's what's always been very interesting to me. The funny thing was that um, for I was working for Here TV, which was a gay, a gay mm-hmm. premium network, kind of like um, you know right. you had to pay a subscription uh-huh, like you uh-huh. do with HBO kind of thing. And they in the middle two thousands they did a few films where they wanted to create original films for the gay network, but they also had a division that made mainstream cable movies mm-hmm. like for Lifetime or whatever. And the gay network wasn't making enough money for them to be able mm-hmm. to finance these films. So they decided, well, look, if we make a film for Lifetime, could we then have enough gay content in the film where it would make sense to mm-hmm. air okay. it on the gay network? That's cool. So, um, the, but at that time, Lifetime wasn't really gung-ho to have a lot, you know, ma- you know major right. gay characters or gay characters in the like, leads. They like might have the a best friend or something like that, yeah. bit part or something. Yeah. But, um, so, <laughs> Paul Collishman, the head of your TV, came up with this brilliant idea of what if we did alternate yeah. versions? <laughs> and I did this film called Deadly Skies. And it was also called Force of Impact. I can't remember which version was called which. Um, in one version that was made for Lifetime, Ray Don Chong and Antonio Sabato Jr. are um, 
it, it stars them, and they basically it's about an asteroid about to destroy Earth, and Radon Chong is a scientist who believes that this asteroid is on a path to destroy Earth, and no one believes her. Uh, Antonio Sabato Jr. had been working at this secret installation where they were creating a layer that would blow up rogue, you know, asteroids mm-hmm. before hitting Earth, but they'd lost their funding, and he had, had been put in mothballs, and he's put out to pasture, and, but she knows that this, this had been going on, so she finds, uh, she tracks him down and says, listen, you've got you to gotta help us break into that installation, get that mm-hmm, thing fired mm-hmm. up, and save the planet. So, <laughs> the, uh, so they basically form this little Mission Impossible group to go in, break into the installation, and uh, save the world. In one version, uh, Antonio and Radon Chong, during the course of the film, have this sort of mm-hmm. romance. In the gay <laughs> version, Antonio Sabato Jr. and one of the guys in the Mission yeah. Impossible team have a budding romance. I actually saw the opening scene of it the <laughs> other day. Um, well, they're, they're in bed, and they're cracking jokes. And then Radon shows up at the door and say, "Hey, yep. how you doing?" You know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and uh, so, we, you know, it it involved. There were, you know, a few scenes that were shot, you know, especially mm-hmm. for one version or the other. And uh, it, but most of the movie right. was the same. You can always go back. Well, I can't. After I got on record with my sexuality, you only did that as an excuse to get discharged. They didn't ask, and you certainly didn't have to tell them. We talked about this a thousand times. Don't ask, don't tell applies to a hell of a lot more than sexual orientation. I was done living lies. You know, mine, yes, but especially theirs. You see what goes on on that base every single day, and I don't want to be part of it. Well, you could have stayed. Work from the inside to change things. That's why I'm still there. Nothing you can do is going to stand in the way of their hidden agenda. Let General Dutton be the one with blood on his hands. Then they did a Christmas movie. In that in that um, situation, it was about a, a teenage girl who spends a lot of time at the mall, and she befriends the mall Santa and decides that he's too fat, he's too old-fashioned, she doesn't like the beard. She puts him through this whole exercise routine, and he comes out looking like George Hamilton like because, George of course, Hamilton, he right, plays right. like George Hamilton. <laughs> Zorro <all> himself. <laughs> and in, in the version that went to Lifetime, she has two parents, uh, a mom and a dad. And in the gay version, she oh, wow. has two dads. So we had one, one dad was constant in both versions and then had a mom and second dad that we alternated or flipped, you know, we, I'd shoot the scene with the mom and the dad, and then I'd right. yank out the mom and put in the other dad, and we'd shoot another take. And um, so then they were saying, Sam, you're gay, so, you know, you should rewrite the dialogue for the, for the gay dads. And I'm like, no, the whole point of it right, is it should be exactly the same. It should not be different right. in any way. So that's how we did it. The one thing we forgot, okay, there's a scene where the... 
the mall uh, security guard comes mm-hmm. to lecture the parents, and he's like, Mr. <laughs> and Mrs. Smith, your daughter is spending way too much time at the mall. Okay, <laughs> yank out the mom, take two, here's the two dads, and action. Mr. Right. M- <laughs> Mr. Smith, your daughter <laughs> is spending too much time at the mall. And luckily the crew and everybody kept it together. They didn't burst out laughing. And it was the most real and perfect oh, moment. We kept it in the film well, because it's exactly what yeah. would happen in a situation like That's that. Awesome. And it was, it, was, it was fantastic. It was really fun, you know, doing those versions. I think nowadays, um, you know, Lifetime right. would let you have gay characters, I guess, in the, in the leads. I don't, I don't know. Mentioned, but uh, the, I guess the idea of doing these, these versions it kind of went by the way. It reminds me uh, 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 a lot what Universal Pictures did back in the 1930s with the various uh, alternate versions of the Dracula, Dracula, Spanish you know? Dracula. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. right, yes. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Spanish yeah, Dracula. To, yep. To, to Absolutely. It's funny, that's the first thing I thought of too when you started talking about that. And it'll be, it'd be neat to, especially with the Anto Sabato situation, to re-edit that into like a <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the Bride of Frankenstein. A man with a legendary career behind him. Who's this new yard man? Mr. Boom, I, I thought something be. He came cheap. A man with his life still ahead of him. Hey, the master wants to know if you're free for lunch. I do have a lawn this afternoon. I'm free until then. Expect nothing fancy. Come in, Mr. Boone. Separated by class. Are you famous? I was merely a director. You have the most architectural skull. Have you ever sat for an artist? By time. You were a soldier. I was an officer in the trenches. And by desires. All I know is bugger. He's a bugger. Does that surprise you? I'm not. You know. Mm. I did not think you were a bugger at all. They have nothing in common. Mr. Clayton Boone, my gardener. He's never met a princess, only queens. Except their humanity. I've spent much of my life outrunning the past. And now it floods all over me. I'm losing my mind. Every day a new piece of it goes, and soon there'll be none of it left. My condition will continue to deteriorate until the end of my life. Man's gonna make up his life alone. A philosopher. Thoreau. With a lawnmower. Do you believe people come into our lives for a purpose? Please tell us about the critically acclaimed Gods and Monsters. Oh my God, what an incredible project. Um, I read a book called Father of Frankenstein and... I would just absolutely fell in love with it. It was a, it was about James Whale, who was of course the director of Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein. By the way, Bride of Frankenstein is my okay, favorite okay. film of I all time. I definitely like it better than the first one. He also mm-hmm. did The Invisible Man and The Old Dark House. I mean, just incredible director. He was also um, gay mm-hmm. and pretty open about it back in those days. And um, and I didn't know that, of course, when I was growing up. But at any rate, I always found him a really fascinating director and an, and an icon and an idol and someone that I really looked up to. So when I read this book, Father of Frankenstein, that dealt with his later years and his decline in the 50s, I just fell in love with the book. And I got in touch with the writer, and I said, I would really love to option this book. I don't have any money. Would you be willing to do a free option? Anything. I would just I would love to adapt this and try to make a film. 
and and I don't normally do that because I've I've failed miserably in trying to get projects off the ground um, mm-hmm. from the get go. I'm really a director. Mm-hmm. I'm not much of a, in the way of a producer and dealing with all of that. But I just felt so passionately about that. And he said, "Well, a guy named Bill Condon ah. just beat you to it a week ago." <laughs> And I said, Bill Condon, Bill Condon, how do I know that name? I, oh, I met him at a party at Nancy Allen's. Yeah. He knows Nancy. So I got in touch with Bill, adulated him, and I said, have you thought of Ian McKellen for the role? He said, that's exactly <laughs> who I want for the role. I already wow. sent him the book. But I, he, and then Paul said, but I'm, just, I'm a little concerned that it's going to come off as a dirty old man who's like mm-hmm. has the hots mm-hmm. for a straight guy and who's and of course, mm-hmm, being the mm-hmm. Brendan Fraser character, and uh, so I just don't know how critics or audiences are going to take that. And just hold on, wait. Let me bring in all the reviews uh-huh. from the book that I've collected. And so uh, the next day, I brought in my file, and it's you know reviews from the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and all these, you know, the New Yorker magazine. And um, none of the reviews mm-hmm, mm-hmm. had that problem. And they were all raving about the book and talking about, you know, how great it was. And so in my own small way, I think I alleviated a little bit uh-huh. of the concern in that way. And then pounding them, you've got you to do the movie. And uh, so eventually they ended up getting, uh, getting the financing together and being able to finally green light the picture yeah. which was just and i you know held a gun to their head that i had to work <laughs> on it as one of the executive producers then once we started shooting um it was just so obvious that for an extra for when it finally came out on dvd we had to have a documentary not only on just the making of the film yeah. but a documentary on james whale so david oh, yeah. skull um he and i collaborated on putting together the the behind the scenes tree on on the film and and on you know and going mm-hmm. into the whole history of James Whale and we were able to get interviews with um you know, people who who were still around who knew him like um uh oh geez what's her name from oh, oh, uh, the, oh Gloria Stewart she was in the Gloria Invisible Stewart Man, yeah. who was you know the star oh, of the old, mm-hmm. the old dark house and so we, you know, we had so much fun putting that all together and and just working, you know, on the mm-hmm. film and getting it done. I mean, it was just a charm project. Get it, go. Is a, it still holds up and will, it feels to me like in four, 30, 40, 50 years, this is still going to be looked back on as just a high point for independent mm-hmm. movies in the era. Well, I, I agree with you. I think it's just absolutely fantastic. And it ended up yes. winning the Oscar yes, for Best did. Screenplay, Best which screenplay. Is so well, so well deserved. Yeah. And, it just, uh, you know, it was just a charmed project. So you have a new uh, film, a holiday-themed film, coming out uh, on Lifetime for Christmas 2017 called My Christmas Prince. Could you give us a little heads up on that? Mom, Dad, this is my boyfriend, Alex. <gasps> Your Prince Alexander. What did you just call him? I know our worlds are different. But all that means is that our world together will be that much bigger. And I want to experience all of it with you. She loves you. Not the crown. Taking a risk for the one you love is well worth it. My Christmas friends. And of course, we all of know course. where this is headed. It's, it, it, it's <laughs> the trip that uh, 
what we enjoy. It's the it's the journey that that uh, mm-hmm. that makes it really fun, and especially the cast. I was telling you earlier, um, we've got the parents are played by Parker Stevenson and Pamela Sue Martin, united from Hardy Boys and uh, Hardy Boys Nancy Drew Mysteries, first time together in forty years. Marina Serti from Star Trek Next Generation, and uh, the King is played by Charles Shaughnessy from The Nanny, and Jane Carr, uh, one of the most incredible um, character actresses you will you will have seen her in a million things. Plays yes. the Queen. She is absolutely fantastic. Um, she was in the recent Broadway cast of. Uh, Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder that won the Tony Award for Best Musical a couple years ago. It was based on Kind Hearts and okay. Cornets. And uh, she she's just absolutely incredible. And uh, the lead, the girl, is played by Alexis Knapp, who's in all of the Pitch Perfect ah, movies. Okay, yes. the, the latest Pitch Perfect number three is coming out in December, so it's perfect synergy. <laughs> Our movie's airing December 3rd, and her her big theatrical movie's coming out uh, like a week later. And um, so it's a, it's a really fun film. It's it's funny and sweet, and it looks gorgeous. Oh, my God, it, it's, it's really beautiful to see. So um, should definitely check that out. It's coming on Lifetime Sunday, December 3rd. And it'll be rerun many times throughout the holidays. Well, it's funny. Okay. And um, I was going to say, uh, you brought up something where you mentioned how beautiful it is. It's kind of funny. I I would say, especially probably among among guys, the whole idea of a Lifetime or Hallmark movie, they're usually like, okay, chick flick. I got to say, however, on more than one occasion, quite a few occasions, in fact, every now and then I will spin by Lifetime and Hallmark just because... On more than one occasion, I've been laying on the couch, flipping stations, and I'll turn on a Hallmark movie or Lifetime movie that's beginning. And, I mean, I am a film craft geek from editing to cinematography to the sound design. And there are many times a film has started, and I'm like, damn, this is really edited well. (laughs) Damn, this is really shot incredibly well. And I'll sit there (laughs) and end up watching the whole movie just because I was sucked in by its craft. Uh, so I'm glad you said that. Um, well, that's oh, uh, that's oh. really cool. Well, def- definitely, I try to bring you know, I try to bring all the tools to the table and and make you know, make it as make it way seem way bigger and more lavish than it has <laughs> any right to be on the kind of low budget that we're dealing <laughs> well, with. Well, it's out of curiosity. What kind of tur- <laughs> and, um, what kind of turnaround do you have? I mean, you've had three movies, uh, TV movies in 2017 alone, and. I'm curious yeah. as to from the time you first get a script or the time that an idea is first brought to you to the time it airs. What kind of time factor are we talking about? Well, let me. <laughs> this will be rather sobering. Um, <laughs> this particular this particular Christmas film, um, we finished shooting two Good weeks Lord. ago, and we finished the sound mix yesterday. And uh, it's airing mm-hmm. this coming Sunday. I mean, that is <laughs> how fast it is. It's unbelievably quick. Um, they're not uh-huh. all this quick. Um, the Christmas ones, sometimes by the time the script finally goes through all the development hell and gets greenlit, it's very late in the season. And it's either, well, we could wait and do it next <laughs> year, or if you think you could pull right, it right. together, let's do it for this year. And we're like, we'd rather mm-hmm. do it right now <laughs> while yeah. the iron's hot. So, um, you know, we just, we just jump in and do it. And, 
we were, you know, I, we shot this one in Salt Lake City, Utah, and we brought our editor in, a guy, William Budell, famous for editing the first Sharknado okay. movie. And uh, we brought him in, and we were edit- he was editing every day. And so my director's cut was due two days after Damn. we finished shooting. We pulled a 26-hour editing session. I kid you not. Wow. Not, we barely broke to bite uh. into a sandwich. I mean, literally, that was it. And um, so, you know, it's just, it was an intense, very intense post schedule and uh, to get it all turned around and and... I mean, the composer had, you know, a week to do the entire score, and it is wall-to-wall music from beginning to end without a break. It's, it's incredible. It's funny. So, I was going to ask, um, uh, seeing as sometimes there's, like, serious crunch time, um, most times are you working with a crew that has been assigned to you? Or, I mean, I noticed on a few films you worked with composer Nick Sewell. Is it Sewell or Soul or... Yes, and he and Nick Sewell. He also has done okay. the score to this one, and he's he's incredible. I'll tell you how I. Um, this will lead into my teaching uh, at U- at USC, Great. at the uh, Cinematic Arts School at the University of Southern California. Um, in teaching there, I they at the end of the semester they have a big festival where they show all the student films from all the different classes, and I was there and watching film after film with some of my students, but also, you know, students of Uh other classes that I wasn't involved in. And film after film kept coming up where, damn, this music is good. (laughs) This is incredible music. (laughs) I wonder who did it. And then the credits roll at the end, music by Nick Sewell. And music by Nick (laughs) Sewell. And it just happened over and over. And it was all Hmm. these different styles, totally eclectic. I could, you know, never predict... Who, who had done it, I just knew it stood out as really great. And the students would uh, stand up and thank other people, and people would stand up, and, and Nick happened to be in the audience, and he kept getting, <laughs> you know, thanked. And so then a break comes, and I just go out into the lobby, and, you know, the typical Hollywood thing. We have to work together. Thing, I'm like, hey, uh, give me your card. You know, um, I'm a director. You know, maybe there's something we can do. And, you know, I'm sure he thought, oh, brother, (laughs) I've heard this before. And uh, so anyway, it turns out he's from Australia. He was getting his degree at USC in the film Mm -hmm. scoring department. And uh, just, you know, he just absolutely blew me away. So anyway, I had his card and... It's hard. Many. It's very difficult sometimes to get people hired when they ha- when they don't have credits and you know that kind of thing. But a project came up, and it was um, it was from here on out, and it was a gay series, which was about a, a gay filmmaker trying to make a low budget spy sort of James gay James Bond sort of series. So hired Nick Sewell. Then I did a thriller called The Nurse that um, was for Region Entertainment, a division of, of Here TV, and they had liked what he had done. And he did that in this whole Bernard Herrmann kind of sound, and it was incredible. And, um, and so, you know, since then, I've just used him in, as many times as I possibly can. I just nice. think he's fantastic. I'm sorry, can we just real quick also circle oh, back okay. teaching? Because I'm, I'm wondering, I'm, again, like looking at your schedule, I'm wondering where the hell you even fit that in. Well, <laughs> but also what you're yeah, saying about believe the it or not, there's a, I mean, this business is, you know, feast or famine. And okay. um, after my Kay Thompson book came out, I had 
been I had things had gotten really slow for me for a while, and Mark Rossman he he was part of the wow. whole movies thing with mm-hmm. De Palma, and he's also a director now. And uh, he called up and said, "Hey, I was I, I was just starting to teach a semester at USC, and I've got a Lifetime movie that I need to go off and do." Um, would you want to fill in for me for the semester? And I'm like, yeah, I'm not working. That'd be great. I've always wanted to <laughs> teach you. So I did that, fell in love with it. It was really fantastic. And so then ended up doing a few semesters in a row while I was waiting for the phone to ring and get hired again. And then suddenly, you know, things started to happen again. And then I haven't had the time to go back and and teach for uh, three or four years now, but um, but I love and things slow down. I want to go back nice. and and do that again. I um, one of the one of my students was Ryan Coogler. <laughs> nice. No um, way. Cool. Yeah, he wow. uh, he was in his last semester of getting his graduate degree, and I taught. I was teaching a course, and then. Literally, he graduated. We we finished the semester in May. He met Forrest Whitaker in June, showed him his short film, uh, asked him, you know, what do you want to do? And he said, I've always wanted to do a film about the mm-hmm. Fruitvale Station case. And Whitaker was like, yeah, I wanted, I love, the, I'm fascinated by that whole story. So he mm-hmm. produced, of course, <laughs> yeah. Ryan's film of wow. Fruitvale Station, which won uh-huh. the best film at Sundance and won the big as it can, got picked up by the Weinstein Company, and then, you know, became, right. uh, and then the rest is history. Then his dad uh, Ryan's dad was mm-hmm. all big fan of the Rocky movies, so Ryan grew up watching those and being weaned on those. And Ryan wrote the script for Creed and showed it before Fruitvale Station came out. And Sylvester Stallone was like, mm, "Nice kid, but you know, no thanks." Then when Fruitvale Station comes out, Stallone is like, uh, <laughs> "Right, let's have another meeting about uh-huh. that." <laughs> and uh, of course, that right. ended up becoming Creed, which Ryan wrote and directed. And now they're doing a sequel without Ryan because Ryan's been a wee bit busy Black directing Panther for Marvel. Black yeah, Panther, man. the Marvel <laughs> like, movie. <freaking> awesome! <laughs> wow! Like, good lord, talk about yeah. meteoric rise! Very I'm cool. so proud of him and so happy for him, and he deserves it because he's the nicest guy on the planet. Can you dig it? <laughs> Wow. Well, dude, this was a blast. Thanks, <laughs> this was... Uh, I loved it. It was so much fun, guys. This, this too. Great. It's just I really great, appreciate um, it. Like I said, I mean, it's just great being able to chat with people, um, almost feeling like you're just sitting in a bar, having a drink, and just, you know, sh- shooting the shit <laughs> with someone that you, you know, grew up admiring. It's been really, really fun. I, I couldn't be more thrilled. And uh, it's it's... It's fun to talk to people who actually know a little of my work, too, which is fun. <laughs> that doesn't happen all the time. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, again, thanks for doing this. All right. right take cool. care. Thanks a lot. Have a good Bye. one. Bye-bye. Awesome. 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 That was freaking fun. <laughs> Just, yeah, to- tons of fun and tons of... Man, I hope we get to talk to him again soon. I really do. I really do. That was like talking to a guy that I... That, that was like talking with friends that you grew up with, you know, like a guy that we've known forever. Yeah. yeah. He is straight up... Um, class with a capital C, brother. Anyway, uh, not wanting to drag this on. We've gone on long enough. (laughs) But like I said, it was great. Very informative, very entertaining. So, um, again, uh, thanks, Sam, for joining us. 
Uh, and until next time, I'm Craig Jameson of Gold Cottage Online. And I'm Jim Delaney of The Lunch Movie. And thank you for joining us here at The Movie Sneak. We'll see you next time up there in those cheap seats. Those cheap seats. <laughs>